Bob Pickering podcast. It doesn't matter fate or what. Well, friends, if you hadn't heard the news, I hate to be the one to break it to you. Little Richard, the king and queen of rock and roll, Richard Wayne Penniman, shuffled off his mortal coil in Shakespeare's terms or something like that. Little Richard was a fascinating, fascinating character and deeply important in American culture. He collected, synthesized, and moved forward so many significant traditions in American culture and American life, packaged them as something new, and put his name on it. He belonged to a to a tradition of black drag queens that started from William Swan, at least probably before that, through Gladys Bentley and her chorus line of drag queens in the 1930s, to RuPaul's Drag Race, and on and on. He had the ability to combine so many disparate elements of American culture and present them to us in a way that continues to hold our interest and our attention. After Richard died, I started revisiting a lot of the rock and roll American culture built around the 1950s and and showing images of little Richard. There was something back then that was really attractive about the 1950s to our culture in general. There was a tremendous amount of nostalgia for it in the Reagan era. And there was a tremendous amount of nostalgia on a certain edge of it for the dirty side of it, the greasy side of it. There were some great, great bands that were capitalizing on that, like the Blasters, Stray Cats in the beginning. I'm in a hot rod gang, boom, boom, shingling, shimmy, 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 wop, bang, bang, all of that kind of stuff. And it was great. And some of the great films, John Waters' Cry Baby, Jim Jarmusch's Mystery Train, with Jay Hawkins as a velvet suit, night clerk, with his belly laugh, his broad smile. One of the things that was great about that time, these people were still around. They were younger than I am now. They still performed. You could walk into a nightclub and see Jerry Lee Lewis standing up on the piano, banging on it. He was some guy who used to be famous, but he was only 50, and he was still killing it. In Mystery Train, there's a great scene where a young lady is looking through a picture book, juxtaposing figures from history with Elvis and suggesting that Elvis is a figure who repeats himself through time, claims a certain identity during a certain epoch, but really is timeless. And I would say that that might apply to Elvis. The ending shot of that montage is Elvis against Madonna, who's at the height of her fame right then. She looks a hell of a lot like him. Prince looked a hell of a lot like little Richard. That's something that keeps coming back. It's a very Whitmanian idea, right? Look for me under your boot heels. 
about souls. I don't remember the line. Nothing really goes away because nothing's really new. Somebody just jumps on board with it for a while. About a week ago, I was walking with my wife. We were commiserating over the loss of John Prine, an enormously important American poet. I quipped, well, at least we still have little Richard. But then, I guess we didn't. A few days later, she said, you knew. I don't know if I knew. I don't know what I can predict. I can certainly predict the outcome of bad movies. That's about it. But I am a student of fate, a student of coincidence, a student of incidents. I've always been fascinated by noticing those details that rhyme with some other experience in my life. It may just be the power of my subconscious to organize information. It may just be being a reasonable creature. To paraphrase Ben Franklin, it's good to be a reasonable creature because you can make a reason for anything. And yet that reason-making exercise, I think, is really important. It's better to do it than to not to. Maybe. Maybe it's not. I don't know, actually. I mean, if you're predisposed to do it, you'll do it. Making meaning out of trivial things that pop up again and again is, as Whitman says, the flag of my disposition. Around the time that these films were coming out, and I was listening to a lot of Little Richard, Chuck Berry, Sonny Landslim, Little Junior Parker, Screaming Jay Hawkins. I was working at a gas station. It was pretty 1950s too. I was doing tires and brakes, and working in the shop. We'd go out and wash the windows and collect the money. Another thing that's kind of disappeared from American life, I guess. And uh, they were going to close it down and modernize and open up a little mini-mart. And I was in a position to be able to go on unemployment and not work for the summer, which wasn't real common for me. I'd never been on unemployment before or since. I would usually just keep my winter job and do construction in the summer and try to stock up a little bit. But I had an opportunity to go on this sailing trip. And so... I took it and I was gone for the summer and came back in time to start my four-year college after transferring from community college and to resume my position at the gas station. Anyway, I came back to Chico in the spring of 1990 and started my life as an English major and my life as a gas station attendant, I guess. During that summer, I was, uh, when I was sailing, I happened upon a show called Northern Exposure. There was a radio DJ named Chris in the morning. I don't know what his thing was. I don't know what he was going for. He was kind of a Joe Frank or a Spalding Gray, I guess. Fancied himself one. 
I discovered Chris while sitting in an empty bar in Sydney, British Columbia, the light rain drizzling outside. It was pretty good. I don't know why I came back to a sweltering Chico late summer, early fall. So I was working with my best friend Nels, who had also discovered the show. And it was pretty significant for both of us, that first episode, or I assume it was the first episode. Who knows? I disremember. At any rate, Chris was in trouble for playing or talking about Whitman on the radio, talking about the, the lusty, body queer Whitman that so many of us know and love. He was reflecting on the difference between reading Whitman in a prison library, which I guess was his backstory, and in a classroom. He was thinking about Whitman as somebody who unscrewed the locks from the doors, to quote him. Anyway, he was becoming kind of a hero to us at the point, and we were thinking a lot about Chris in the morning and also thinking about Whitman. Of course, I'd read Whitman before that, and I probably sensed that Whitman was more interesting than I was the version I was getting in school. And so, I don't know the extent to which Chris in the morning steered me towards a lifelong relationship to Walt Whitman, but I definitely uh, have one. One day I was moving between my morning class at Chico State and my afternoon shift at the gas station. I stopped in the bookstore. We got a great local bookstore in Chico, and the kid sitting behind the counter that sold me this copy of Leaves of Grass uh, owns the bookstore now, and he's probably sitting down there right now. Actually, I don't know if they're open during this lockdown. At any rate, I bought this copy of Leaves of Grass, and I open it, and it says inside, Bob Pickering, Princeton, 1940. Around here, you'd guess that Princeton was Princeton, California, a tiny little town over on the river. But it had a Princeton University book seal on the inside of it, and that was part of the appeal of the book, I think. I think that, like these coincidences that I'm thinking about, I used to think a lot about, still do, about the hands that held a book before I own it. The local bookstore was a great place, as was the library book sale, because you could occasionally scoop up a book that belonged to one of your professors or someone's dad or people that you knew. It was just kind of interesting to accumulate those objects. And so I had this book, Bob Pickering, Princeton, New Jersey, 1940. And I took it with me into the gas station, and Nels and I sat in the mini-mart selling our cigarettes and whatever, candy bars. We kind of worked over Bob Pickering, this idea that this book came to us by fate, that it was somehow important, that his having owned it meant something. We wondered about his life, his book, why we had it, how it came to us through all this time. 
Of course, now we would have just aimed Google at it and pulled the trigger. Maybe we made more connections then because we were more interested in mystery. Maybe we make more now because we can find them so quickly. At any rate, I had a lot of time and a lot of energy and a need for diversion at the time, and that's what we used to do. So we're sitting there, passing our shift, thinking about Bob Pickering. <clears throat> a guy comes in the door, hands me a credit card, and it says, Will Pickering. And I said, huh, that's interesting. You don't know Bob Pickering, do you? And this guy's like, ah, he's, he's not quite our age. He's five, six, seven years older than us. I don't know. He's, he's not someone we know. I haven't seen him in, in Duffy's. But uh, he, he looks kind of, know, he looks of our generation, I guess. So I don't know who we thought Bob Pickering would be to him. But anyway, he says, yeah, that's my dad's name. Why? And I, I think what's happening at this point is that Nels and I are pretty sure that this is the greatest moment of our lives. We have a kind of instant validation of all the intellectual labor that we've put into Bob Pickering over the course of four hours without saying or thinking of anything else. The guy looks a little bit confused. He's like, why? I don't know if he thinks it's a gag or what. He seemed more irritated than curious. So anyway, I open the book, I spread it before him, and I point to Bob Pickering, Princeton, 1940. He's like, oh, that's not my dad. I'm like, really? And I said, did he go to Princeton? And he says, yeah, but like 20 years later. So I don't know, this is weird at this point, because I'm like, well, that's still a pretty striking coincidence, I think. William Pickering doesn't seem that interested in it. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I thought it was, I thought it was at least interesting. So anyway, he gets in his car and he drives away and Nelson and I are thinking about this. We're like, wow, that's like the greatest thing. The pattern of the universe just revealed itself to us. We're bonded together as initiates into the greatest secrets possible from this point forward. Wonder why old Will there is not inclined to join us. Anyway, he got in his car and drove away. I thought it was profound. I mean, I, I, I don't know whether it is now or not. What maybe I'm focused more on now is that he didn't really care. Or if he did, he really didn't show it to us. So oh, once again, I think, you know, it's the flag of your disposition, whether you care about this thing or something like this. I don't know what the odds are. You sit there in a gas station, people come in, they give you your credit card, you ring them up. I don't, it was the busiest intersection in town. Hundreds of people came in every day, thousands of people a week. I worked five days a week, six hours a day. I don't know how many thousands of names I saw. So one of them might hit. There was the Princeton thing, though. When I think about it going forward, the Walt Whitman part of the story 
is really, really important to me. Even if the Bob Pickering part isn't. The shape-shifting, gender-bending, time-traveling Walt Whitman, who's very much like Little Richard, by the way, somebody who's in a way just participating in a long tradition hanging out with Fred Vaughn in Fafs, wearing a dress. Same kind of thing that little Richard's doing. And then grabbing a hold of some deep impulse in American culture, putting it in front of us and us loving it without loving him at the same time, by the way. That part of it is still really, really important to me. Bob Pickering as a concept has become important to me as part of that story, I guess, because that element of coincidence, that element of chance, that element of the reoccurrence of the thing that seems to have disappeared, that still really matters to me. That book itself might matter to me too. I mean, Bob Pickering is still in my life in the form of that book. I've got it right here in my hand right now. Bob Pickering, Princeton, 1940. Princeton University, Princeton, New Jersey. So that story is contained in this other story. And for that reason, it seems important. John Prine, in a lot of interviews, they'd ask him about a line in a song, and he'd say, why that line? He'd say, just because it's true, it happened. That's just what happened. And you'd be like, that is not one of the principles by which we organize literary texts. And yet it just worked. It worked because it was true. It was there and it was laden with meaning. And if the flag of your disposition pointed towards figuring out that meaning, it was there to figure it out. After the end of my shift, I went home to join Nels. I put the copy of my book on a dresser. Dresser that also came to me secondhand as pretty much everything did in my life at a time when I was poor. Poorer. I mean, I'm a teacher now. I went in and joined Nels. He's watching Northern Exposure in the other room. I'd kind of decided that fate, though, was maybe less important than reason. I'd kind of decided that this was just a lot of me figuring stuff out because I had a lot of time on my hands. I didn't have that much else to think about. We were watching our show, and Chris, as I said before, was in trouble again for playing something on the radio. It was something of a pattern. He'd get in trouble and he'd get grounded from the radio and Maurice would play whatever his junk was and nobody wanted it. So they'd force him to take Chris back. We identified with Chris as a a menial employee and as somebody who was a fellow traveler and searching for meaning. I think also Chris living 
in a trailer by the river and riding around on an old FLH seemed a lot more obtainable than anything that I've actually done in life. It seemed like that would be the more normal course of my life. Becoming boring and middle class seemed pretty hard to reach at that time. So Chris's boss at the radio station, Maurice, has given him a lecture, admonishing him to not overthink things. Basically, Maurice was saying, yeah, I know there are mysteries out there. Maurice was a fighter pilot, a marine pilot, I think. There's one episode where he admits to having seen aliens, but you just got to keep your mind off of it because if you go down a side road of the mind, it'll take you down a side road of the life and everything will be lost. You just got to bracket that stuff and think about it sometimes and not turn it into a lifestyle. He's telling us to Chris. He's thinking that he can steer Chris away from some of his side trips of the mind and make him a better employee and a better citizen. He says to Chris in his lecture, as my old friend Bob Pickering used to say, 